What are you going to do with your life? Has anyone ever received that question? What are you going to do with your life? I'm seeing some nods. Now, it's a question that we usually reserve for asking high school students because, of course, we know that life only starts once you figure out what career you want. But it's a question that my family tend to ask me on a regular basis, and I think it's possibly because they don't understand what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> and so Christmas just gone, I got the question again. We're sitting around family lunch, and they said to me, so what are you going to do with your life? And I sat there, and this time I didn't have an answer for them. And as I went away and I reflected, I got more and more frustrated that they'd asked the question. And so, in true introvert fashion, I thought about the response that I wanted to say a few hours later. And so, instead of telling my family, I'm going to tell you what I wanted to say to them. And this is what I would have said. What do you mean by that? I'm almost 30. I'm turning 30 this year. What do you mean, what am I going to do with my life? I am living my life. I've been living my life for the last 30 years. So, when you ask me that question, what do you mean? When you ask me, what are you going to do with your life? Do you mean have one job that pays a certain amount of money rather than the four-ish jobs that I currently have that sometimes pay and sometimes don't? Or do you mean being married with kids and owning a house? Do you mean going out and partying on the weekends and having fun with my friends? Do you mean traveling the world in order to find myself and funding that somehow through my beautifully curated Instagram account that somehow pays for my travel? How jealous are we of those people that can manage that? But I wanted to say to my family, if you don't think that I'm living my life, then you must have some picture in mind of what my life should look like in order for me to be living it well. And I wonder what would come to mind if someone asked you that question. What are you going to do with your life? What do you consider a good life to be? What do you consider a flourishing life to be? Everyone these days seems to have an opinion about what human flourishing is and what the good life is, and everyone's interested in it. From positive psychology to economics, ethics, medical practice, education, philosophy, trade policies, warfare, even my family are all interested in this idea of human flourishing or what makes a good life. And they ask these questions. What makes life worth living? What is life for? What is a good life, and how can I have a good life? The world has a set of ideas about what makes life good and full and flourishing. And this desire for human flourishing is at the center, the foundation of every human decision. It's what motivates us. Deep down, we have a desire to live in peace and security, in love, in health, and in happiness. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything that humans do both from belief in religion to the rejection of it, from living in a marriage relationship to having a promiscuous lifestyle, from waging war to waging peace. People are interested in flourishing, and so they study history and they create art, they plant fields and they build skyscrapers. We are naturally wired towards and created for flourishing, and we will give our lives to anything that we think will help us flourish. The problem is that everyone has a different opinion about what will help us flourish. And the good life is marketed to us every day. Companies claim that they have what we need in order to flourish. 
And so first, they tell us or they show us that we aren't living our lives properly. And they do this because the more insecure you feel about how you're living your life, the more that they can market things to you and the more chance you'll have of buying into what they're selling. And then they tell us that they have this product that will fix everything, that will fix your life and that will bring flourishing. And so we actually pay companies money for things that they say will help us flourish. And you only need to look at the amount of self-help books that are currently on the market to see that people are searching and longing to find what brings them meaning, happiness and flourishing. And we're willing to pay someone else to help us figure it out. Culture's promise of a flourishing life is found in being better, in eating better, in looking better, in attaining more and removing anything that doesn't spark joy. I guarantee that if you and I sat down for an hour and we chatted about your life and we talked about the things that were hard and the things that you think would help fix that, that we would discover you have an idea of what makes a flourishing life too. Perhaps it's some combination of the right diet, more exercise, more sleep, a better friendship circle, higher income, kids at a different life stage, more plants. That would help me, I feel. Maybe it's peace and quiet for just half an hour a day. Maybe you want to start thinking more positively or have more time to read the Bible and to pray. And when all of that lines up, when you get all of these things in line, somehow your life will be good and flourishing. As if we get the right combination on the safe door and the lock will open and out will come our flourishing life. But the past is littered with unmet expectations and disappointment as each advancement in society and each new product that has claimed to bring us a flourishing life has failed to live up to what it promised. And so instead, the meaningless pursuit of the good life is delivering our society isolation, anxiety, and frustration, and it causes us to be disillusioned with what the good life truly is. And so in this series, Flourishing Life, we're going to be unpacking how the story of King Jesus in John's Gospel shows what true flourishing life looks like. The word that we translate as life in our English translations of the Bible is in the top 10 most used words in John's Gospel. You'll hear phrases like eternal life, the bread of life, abundant life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection of the life. All of those can be found in John's gospel. And so we figured that John might have something to speak into this idea of what makes a good and flourishing life. John invites us to imagine what the flourishing life looks like. The life of Jesus, portrayed by John, cuts across the world's view with its own claims about what true and flourishing life is. And as per usual with Jesus, it's not what anyone was expecting. So I want to read you the first couple of verses again from John 1. I'm going to read John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I wonder if you have ever noticed that John is very different to Matthew, Mark and Luke, the other Gospels. So rather than opening with a story about Jesus' birth or the genealogy, John gives us this big, beautiful, complex statement about who Jesus is. 
Now, the Gospel of John has a bad reputation amongst some of the pastoral team here at Richmond for using fluffy language. And so I feel like I need to give a little bit of a defense of the Gospel of John. So just bear with me for a second because I think this is important. So John wrote his gospel a little bit later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I like to think is that he was able to soak in the stories of Jesus just that little bit longer. And so rather writing, then this happened, then this happened, then Jesus said this, then this happened, he's actually sat down and soaked in, marinated in what he learnt from the life of Jesus. And so John has crafted poetic language that conjures up images and offers deep theological insight. But what's really important is that we don't mistake this for a different message. John is saying the exact same thing as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the rest of the Bible. He's just using different language. But John's declaration is still that Jesus is king, and John is pointing to the coming kingdom. So whenever John uses words like life or eternal life, you can think and hear kingdom of God. So defense over. I feel like it needed to happen. So in the opening words of John's gospel, he says, in the beginning, in the beginning, which should make us think about some other opening words. Can anyone think where they've heard the words in the beginning? In Genesis, yeah, Genesis 1. This is a huge signpost to Genesis 1. John wants us to have the story of Genesis 1 in our minds as we read through what he has to say. And Genesis 1 tells of God taking what is dark and in chaos and disordered and creating light and life, wholeness and flourishing. When God finished creating the world, he said it was very good and his intent for creation was always for it to flourish. And as part of God's creation, who are made in his image, we feel this same desire for flourishing. We are created to flourish and to desire flourishing for ourselves, but also for others and all of creation. So the Genesis 1 ideal is this, that we can all flourish and that we flourish best together in healthy relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with all of creation. But in Genesis 3, we read about humanity pushing aside God's ideal for human flourishing and choosing their own way to flourish. And chaos, disorder, and darkness are reintroduced into the world and in an instant, humanity's idea of flourishing changes. No longer can we flourish together. The Genesis 3 view of flourishing is that my personal flourishing can only happen at the expense of you or other people. And there are thousands of examples, tens of thousands of examples that I could draw on from all throughout history to explain this. We think about in the Bible, uh, the story of Joseph comes to mind for me. Joseph was the favourite son to his father, and so he received a lot of things from his dad that the brothers, other brothers didn't receive. And so his brothers saw that they were flourishing, that Joseph was flourishing, and thought, we're not going to get our dad's favour unless Joseph disappears. And so they plot to kill him, and when they decide that's not a good idea, instead they sell him into slavery. But he goes away because they believe that their flourishing is tied to him going away. Maybe a more recent example that we can think of would be the idea of colonisation, that one nation comes into another country and says, in order for us to flourish as a people here, the first people in this land can't live here anymore. They need to be moved off the land. If we think about a really recent example, we can look at what happened in New Zealand on Friday. Someone decided that in order for their people to flourish, another group of people had to die. I don't know if you've had a chance to read any of what has been written around this, 
But this is a direct quote from the gunman's manifesto. He said, we must ensure the existence of our people and the future for white children. In other words, in order for him and his people to live and thrive in this world, someone else had to die. It's horrifying. The Genesis 3 view of flourishing is that in order for me to flourish, you or someone else has to suffer and possibly die. And we may never actually verbalise it like this, because if we do, it sounds flipping awful. But it's the sad reality of our world. Just look at how modern-day slavery works. In order for me to have what I want and what I think I need in order to flourish, someone on the other side of the world who I will never meet in a sweatshop is suffering and possibly going to die so that I can have what I need to flourish. Genesis 3 tells of how humanity becomes territorial, exerts power through violence, looks after their own survival and flourishing at the expense of other individuals and communities. And we do this, we participate in this, in order to create what we think is going to make us as individuals flourish. But this is a short-sighted view of flourishing, where if I define my own tribe, my family's well-being and flourishing at the expense of another, it's like, oh well, I'm flourishing, my tribe's flourishing, what does it matter if anyone else is? But I would say that this is a subhuman form of existence, and it's not a picture of the flourishing life that God is calling us to. This is the story that John wants us to have in mind when he opens his account with the words, in the beginning. He wants us to be thinking about all of the horrible things that have gone on because what he is about to say is incredibly good news. John's claim is that that God has sent Jesus into the world, the one who in the beginning, Jesus was there in the beginning, and he was the one who brought flourishing out of chaos and darkness, and he has come to live among us. True light and life, true good flourishing life is found in Jesus, John says. True flourishing life is found in Jesus. In him, all things were created. Nothing that exists was made apart from him. Light was created in him. Life was created and continues to be sustained in him. And it is good. Jesus is the source of all life and all that is good in the world. And because Jesus is the only source of anything good in the world, human beings can only flourish and be truly happy when their lives are centred on him, the source of everything that is good and true and beautiful. So John's message is that Jesus has come to live among us in order to offer us light and a flourishing life, in contrast to the darkness and the chaos that the world has to offer. But I don't want you to mishear me, and this doesn't mean that eating well or getting enough sleep or removing things from life that don't spark joy are bad things. And I think we should be really uh, critical of any theology that says that our present life, our current reality, is unimportant. Our lives do matter to God, our lives now. And so there's no reason that we shouldn't long for a life free of pain and sorrow, We should desire peace and joy, healing and wholeness because that is what God created us for. So eating well, sleeping well, getting rid of things that don't spark joy are all good things. But they are empty pursuits without Jesus. And they are idols if they are placed above Jesus and given status as something that will bring flourishing apart from him. That would be worshipping that which is created rather than the creator.
So to have this flourishing life is to relate to the God who is the source of life and the source of all that is good. And life is available to all through Jesus. John tells us all we have to do is receive it, which can leave us wondering if we have received it because life can still be really hard after we decide to follow Jesus. It can leave us asking, where is the flourishing life that Jesus promised? So John claims that Jesus has come to bring flourishing out of darkness and chaos in our lives, and that in Jesus we find the answers to the good life. But not in a soft, watered-down Sunday school, Jesus is the answer kind of way. The good, flourishing life is not a perfect life in the way the world defines perfect. And our flourishing life now on earth, this side of Jesus coming again, won't necessarily be free of sickness and hardship and pain. A little bit later in John's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. The way Jesus spoke is probably counter or opposite to many people's view of human flourishing. Jesus says that the path to a flourishing life is the way of the cross the way of sacrifice, and the way of laying down one's life. Whereas so much of human life is about getting, acquiring, attaining, having more for self, movement that moves towards ourselves, Jesus says that flourishing life is actually about movement that goes away, that moves away from ourselves towards others and towards him. The world says flourishing is movement towards self. Jesus flips that upside down and says flourishing is found in movement towards him, and towards others. It's a strange, counterintuitive flourishing of dying and rising again in order to live, of losing everything in order to find everything. It's a call to follow Jesus to the cross and to lead by getting on our hands and knees to serve others. This is the fullness of flourishing life, not the counterfeit flourishing that the world offers. And somehow, paradoxically, when we let go, when we cease striving for the things that the world promises will help us flourish, Jesus promises that it's then that we will find rest. Which sounds really wonderful. I could do with some rest and a flourishing life. So if, like me, even though I've been wrestling with this for weeks, you're possibly thinking that sounds really nice, but it also sounds a little bit vague. I don't know if you're thinking that. I definitely have been. What does it actually mean? What does the flourishing life actually look like? If the invitation is to find flourishing life in Jesus, what does it mean? What does it look like? One of the Bible words that's often used in relation to flourishing life is the word shalom. We've talked about it here before. It's a Hebrew word that we translate as peace. Now, shalom is more than just the absence of violence, and it's frustrating that we do translate it as peace because we have so many ideas about what peace means, and we think peace is when there's no violence. But the word shalom is so much deeper and richer. It's about restoration. It's about renewal. It's about reconciliation, and it's about justice. It means to be completed, to be whole, things the way they're supposed to be. Shalom is a picture of flourishing life. The flourishing life is not about a particular way to live that makes ourselves feel better or coming to a place of inner self-calm and peace. It's about joining with what God is doing in looking after his creation, in working for a just society and in caring for his people. Flourishing life is a life that's lived for others and works for things to be the way it was supposed to be. 
but not just for ourselves, for everyone. Flourishing life is not inward and individualistic, but outwardly focused and community-oriented. This is kingdom life, and this is flourishing life. And our task as Jesus' followers is to partner with him to bring about life and light and flourishing to a world that is in darkness and chaos. And we only need to look at what's happened in the last week to see the darkness and chaos that is around us. We believe that flourishing life is found in Jesus and that it's life in Jesus that brings about reconciliation with God, with self, with others and creation. It's a life lived outwardly, oriented towards others. And so as complicated and as big as I find flourishing life, this is how I've tried to define it for us. Human flourishing is a way of living that's oriented towards God and lived out of the fullness or the overflow of our relationship with God in love and peace with others and ourself and creation. And so if this is true, here's a few things that I think we need to do. If flourishing life is found in Jesus, then it makes sense that we should pause and reflect on where we are at in our relationship with him. And I was thankful that Tom did that for a few moments for us this morning. Is a flourishing life found in Jesus something that we just think about on Sundays and then we move on to Monday and we go back to the self-help books and the marketers to help us flourish? Or is this flourishing life found in Jesus something that is for our full life, our whole life? If true flourishing life is found in Jesus alone, we need to allow him to be the centre of our lives. And it's only out of this overflow that we will find the energy to sustain ourselves and to help others flourish. And this might mean a few things. It might mean a few adjustments to your life. It might mean making more space for prayer, which is just our fancy word for talking with God, which is how we build relationship with people. So it makes sense that that would be how we build relationship with him. It might mean opening your Bible and getting to hear about the ways that he has been faithful in the past and will continue to be faithful into the future. And it might mean with gathering, gathering with other Christians, not just on a Sunday, but during the week, joining a gospel group. And if you aren't sure where to start, please come and talk to one of us. We would love to help you figure out what it would look like for you to continue to grow in your relationship with Jesus. And the second thing that I think is crucial to figuring out what flourishing life looks like is by participating in community and working towards its flourishing. Flourishing happens best in community when we are developing relationships and contributing to the flourishing of the community. And within community, we can be vulnerable about our weaknesses and keep our eyes open to the way we can serve others and help them flourish. And I think we find that it won't just add another thing to our to-do list, that it'll actually overflow naturally out of the relationships that we're building. So it's not going to feel like a massive drain to help someone else flourish because it's going to be uh, overflowing out of the relationships that we build. And flourishing community that you are connected into can help you flourish when things aren't going well. Uh, when Tammy and Arthur were here last time from Tanzania, um, a family that we support who are over in Tanzania doing some great work, uh, Tammy was sharing a little bit about the grief that they were experiencing as a family. And she made a comment with me that stuck with me ever since. I think this was like a year and a half ago. So hopefully you'll find it as powerful as I did. Tammy said that she was having trouble believing in the goodness of God and that he would come through for them as a family, but that their church community were believing for them or believing on their behalf. And that just blew me away. 
I'd never thought about the idea that someone else could help me believe if I was struggling to do that. And I think it's partly because we have this really individualistic mindset when it comes to our faith, that our faith has to be an individual pursuit and it can't be a communal thing. I think we have the same individualistic idea when it comes to the idea of flourishing. But if we work towards a flourishing community, when we're stuck and struck with sickness or grief or hardship, and we feel like we aren't flourishing, the community is able to flourish on our behalf and help us get back to a place of flourishing. And this is why we talk about being vulnerable and generous and a hospitable community, because these are things that will help us flourish. And so I want to say, if you feel like you aren't flourishing right now, pulling back from community is not the answer. Lean in, hook in, because the community can help you flourish. I'm going to give you an example of this. Uh, I've been wrestling with some health struggles over the last few months um, and been having a bunch of tests done. Uh, So if you see me with severe bruising on the inside of my arm, it's not anything dodgy. I just bruise really badly when I have blood tests. Uh, And basically, it comes down to the fact that my body is not doing a bunch of things that it should, and it's doing a bunch of things that it shouldn't. Uh, And quite honestly, most days, uh, I don't feel like I'm flourishing. I'm tired, my head's foggy, I have trouble, you know, keeping up with the pace of Elliot in this place. Um, And so the day I got some test results back, I was messaging Naomi, uh, who's currently out with the kids, um, and just telling her how I was feeling and telling her what the diagnosis was, Um, not really expecting, you know, her to have any solutions or answers for me, but her message back literally just said, we are in this together. We are in this together. Now, sure, it's my body, and I'm going to have to do the hard work that it's going to take to get it healthy. No one else is going to be able to eat well or exercise for me, which is a shame. Uh, But I'm not alone in this because I'm a part of a community that is for my flourishing, that's behind me in this, and so that's really cool. Uh, And the more vulnerable that I have been able to be about this, the more I've found other people sticking their hand up and going, do you know what, me too, I'm in the same boat. I should be eating that same way or I should be exercising more. And now it means that we get to journey this together. So not only am I being supported uh, individually in my own kind of things that are going on, but there's actually a group of us that are able to now go, you know what, me too. I'm struggling too. And so that's been very cool. I think that's what flourishing life in relationship looks like. Because we know that the world is broken, and so I don't have any answers for us this morning in terms of like, you know, follow Jesus, flourishing life, everything will get better. It doesn't work like that. That would be awesome, but it's not how it is yet. Uh, So the final thing that I want to say about flourishing is this. Flourishing needs to be understood as incomplete because of God's ongoing mission in the world. The story of redemption and of full flourishing will only be finalized when Jesus comes back again and the kingdom of God is fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. And that ache we feel, that longing that we feel when things aren't right and things aren't flourishing is a longing and a desire for the day that Jesus will come back and put everything right. But for now, as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, we are called to live our lives now in light of that day when Jesus comes again, to participate now in creating a flourishing world. And so despite what the world tells us, flourishing life can only be found when our lives are centred on Jesus. It's in Jesus alone that we find life and that we have access to the reconciliation that brings us into flourishing relationship with God, 
with ourselves, with others, and with all of creation. And if this seems big and hard to comprehend, then welcome to this series. I would invite you to join us as we continue to unpack what it means to find flourishing life in Jesus. Let me pray. King Jesus, we are so thankful that you came and that you lived among us that you are the one that has knowledge and power to bring flourishing life out of chaos and out of darkness. But God, you know that we still live in a world that is affected by sin, by darkness, by brokenness. Uh, And God, you know it hurts. You came and lived among us and you uh, experienced the grief and the sorrow that we feel because things aren't right. So Lord, we long for and we look forward to the day when you will come back and make everything right. Uh, But in the meantime, would you guide us and lead us into participating with you so that we can continue to build flourishing community um, and help the people around us flourish. All these things we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.